So I was reflecting on what to speak about tonight. And I wanted to talk about vastness in space. But even as I started to make notes for myself, the war kept creeping in. Uh, it just didn't want to be ignored. And here we are, you know, we could start with Charles Dickens' extraordinary sentence, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, and we have in many of our cases, a considerable well-being in our lives. And then at the same time, there's these wars going on for thousands and millions of people. And we can watch the Oscars, you know, I'm glad that uh, CODA, Children of Deaf Adults, won. It's an amazing movie. But then we change the screen and we see the children of Maripol or Kiev or places and the incredible suffering. Heartbreaking. So I want to reflect together tonight. Because it's not just the heartbreak of the war in Ukraine. Long have you suffered, said the Buddha, from conflict and war. It's the pandemic. It's climate change. It's the wars in so many places. As we know, in Ethiopia and Tigray, in Libya, still in Syria, in Myanmar, we could go on down the list. And then there are the cries for justice, for economic justice, racial justice, and the continuing racism in the world, and the continuing economic insecurity of so many. And now we have Russia again as our big enemy. You know, there we go. For a while, it was the immigrants, right? or the Mexicans, or the Central Americans, or the gays, or, or it's the anti-vaxxers, or it's the vaxxers, or it's the radical liberals, or it's the white supremacist conservatives, and so forth. Now Russia's our enemy, enemy du jour, I think we should say. And the military-industrial complex is very happy about this. It's been tough not having a really good enemy to fight. And we're a country that, when I looked it up before this talk, if you talk about regime change, depending what list, 20, 30, 40, 80 different countries we have meddled in, from Iran and Chile, from assassinating Patrice Lumumba, from the Philippines, from countries across Central America, from Iraq, we have toppled the leadership in country after country. We, the peaceful American people. And this is part of what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, where we voted to defund the State Department, to not create a Department of Peace, and up our military budget to trillions of dollars over the years, and then worry why we don't feel safe. So how to practice in these times? Because this is where we are as human beings. How do we navigate? The media, of course, tries to hype things up and exacerbate fear and anxiety and polarization. 
and then the results are anger and depression. And of course, if you read the Buddhist text, one of the interesting things is that Mara, who is, as most of you know, the God who personifies greed, hatred, and ignorance, and so forth, who came to attack the Buddha as he sat peacefully under the Bodhi tree, the night of his enlightenment. The interesting thing is that Mara returns after the Buddha's enlightenment 40 different times in the texts to try to hook the Buddha or bother him or challenge him. Almost always the Buddha says, oh, is that you, Mara? Are you back again? Here's what we don't want to hear. I could weep when I say it. There is no easy fix to this. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was two generations before Navalny, who's now in a Siberian camp. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, one of the greatest Russian writers who was thrown into a camp in Siberia. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? It's not just the enemy out there the enemy du jour, who it happens to be. It's also that within our own hearts. My friend, Roger Walsh, who's a spiritual seeker, MD, PhD, psychiatrist, various other things like that, in his multiple studies, read the entire encyclopedia of world religions, trying to understand them from Ahura Mazda at the beginning to Zoroaster at the end. And I said, Roger, what did you learn from that? He said, I saw that in these hundreds of religions with hundreds and billions of followers over the years, they all had creation stories. They all had stories of good and evil and how we should behave. They all had stories of the place of human beings in the environment and the cosmos. Said all kinds of beautiful, wonderful stories. And by the end, it was very clear that there were all these stories placed upon the mystery. That there wasn't the right story. But that we're actually living in this extraordinary, vast mystery of consciousness and human life. And we explain it to ourselves because we're storytelling creatures. But as the great mythologist Joseph Campbell said at one point, and I had the fortune of teaching with him at Esalen back in the day. He said, if you want a myth, you should make it really big or maybe none at all because that's how big the mystery is. But here we are. This is also called samsara, which is the cycle of suffering that follows grasping and greed, fear and anger, hatred and ignorance and confusion. Those become the seeds to keep it going and we can see it in the world. And then as the Buddha says, 
in war, there are no victors. Because it happens to everyone. What then? How do we practice? I remember when I was living in the forest monastery at Ajahn Chah's, which is in a province that borders Cambodia and Laos, toward the Vietnamese end of the south of Thailand and the, the uh, Southeast Asia. And there were, there was a big US air base right nearby. So we would see bombers and, you know, fighter jets and so forth often fly over on the way to Vietnam or Cambodia. And one day uh, we had a visit from some folks that I knew about. They were a group, I think they were Quakers or international peacekeepers who had gone to volunteer and live in Vietnam during the war, trying to make peace between people. They were really brave and beautiful. And they said, we can't stand by. We have to do something. We are going to go there. And they came into the monastery. They were burned out. They'd been in the middle of so much conflict. It was really hard. They looked for a little respite. But then they also complained to Ajahn Chah. And they said, you know, there's a war going on. And you all are just sitting on your behinds, you know, meditating. What about taking care of the world? What about compassion in action? But they stayed for a while. They stayed for 10 or 12 days. Ajahn Chah didn't even answer them at first. He said, you stay here for a bit. We'll talk about it. Well, that was his beautiful answer, really. And what they could see, if you live in a war zone, everything is in danger. The temples were being destroyed. Things were being stolen. People turn against one another. There's so much fear and violence. And this was an island of peace and sanity. There might be some jets, fighter jets flying overhead on occasion, but you could lose your gold ring and someone would find it and save it, put it on the altar that you might get it back. You could find yourself lost at night and people would go and help you. It was a place of peace and love. And as Ajahn Chah said to them later, it was a living library of what was possible. He said, wars come and go. And around here, we've seen a lot of wars, he said. And we need to show that there is another way. We human beings, said Ajahn Chah, are constantly in combat, at war to escape the fact of being so limited, limited by so many circumstances we cannot control, things that we wish were different. But instead of escaping, we continue to create suffering, waging war with evil, waging war with what is too small or too big or too soon or too late, waging war with what's too short or too long or right or wrong, courageously carrying on the battle. It's time, he said, to stop the war. And we know where the war starts. It starts in the human heart. To make your own heart a zone of peace.
And I remember when I went to a temple in Vietnam during the middle of fighting in the Mekong Delta, I don't remember which year it was, maybe 1969, 70. And um, visiting the temple of the peacemaking monk, the coconut monk he was called, on this little island, it was a peaceful island and you could see the helicopters and firefights in the horizon. And this was a place, all the signage and all the teachings was a place of peace. And in the hill at the end of the island, at the far end of the island, there were two very tall statues, maybe 40 feet tall or something like that. I was used to seeing long reclining Buddhas and big standing Buddhas in these countries. But this was a statue of Buddha and a statue of Jesus. And they had their arms around each other's shoulders as if to say, yes, there's a war happening, but there's another way. And you know how often I quote Thich Nhat Hanh when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. So make your heart a zone of peace. Set your compass, your highest or deepest intentions, because this is what's given to you as a human being. Others will be cruel, said the Buddha. We shall be kind. Others will kill living beings. We shall protect living beings. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will steal. We shall be generous. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will engage in harmful sexuality. We will respect sexuality. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will speak falsehoods, maliciously gossip. We will speak truth that is a benefit. Thus, we will incline the heart. Others will be greedy. We will be generous. Thus, we shall incline the heart. Others will be unmindful. We shall establish ourselves in mindfulness and compassion. Thus, we shall incline the heart. And this is what's possible. And the thing is that we know this. Part of what's so heartbreaking in seeing the wars in so many places and the violence. I went up to the battlefront in Laos. I was still in the Peace Corps working on medical village, medical teams, tropical medicine, mostly malaria, but a little bit typhoid and leprosy programs. And I had a buddy on the other side of the Mekong River who was in the International Volunteer Force that was probably run by the CIA because the Peace Corps wouldn't go into those into Vietnam or Laos during the during the conflict. But he was there. He said, you want to go up to the front? And being young and foolish, you know, young men say, is there anything dangerous to do around here? Uh, so I said, sure. So we commandeered a jeep. 
and we drove through the mountains. It was sort of the narrow part of Laos, which means it's only about a hundred miles or so from the Mekong River to the border of Vietnam. And we drove through these on this kind of dirt road through the mountains and little villages and came to a hilltop above a stream. And there was the encampment of the Royal Lao Army. And I met the officer, the major who was running that encampment. We talked some about the war. He had a good, he had actually a good little library. He had books about revolution in all different places and how they'd won and who lost and so forth. He was pretty sophisticated. And he said, you know, we sat down, he poured us tea. I said, how's it going here? He said, it's pretty quiet. He said, but it's now, you've come, it's now afternoon, it's almost our bathing time. And he went out on the bluff and he shouted across the stream to the encampment of the Patet Lao, of the Lao Communist Army. He said, we're going to take our bath first today, all right? And the guy said, all right, you know, how's the up nam? And, and, and he said, sure, you can, you can. So his men went down and they put on their bathing cloths and they washed and they came back and said, okay, it's your turn. Now you guys, and you see the soldiers from the other side. The Lao culture is a very peaceful culture, which we can make in this world. That's the beautiful thing and part of the point of the story. Behind the, the Lao, Patat Lao communist army on the other side, were a lot of Vietnamese, Vietnamese soldiers who were really quite fierce and ferocious, pushing them. And behind on my side of the Royal Lao Army was across the Mekong River, the encampments of the US Special Forces who were pushing the Lao to fight on that direction. And these guys, they knew you know, that it was a proxy war. It actually had almost nothing to do with their country. And they didn't wanna do it they knew in themselves that it was not the right thing. So war can sound noble, you know, and there are all these heroic myths, the Trojan War, right? Or you read of the Genghis Khan or the Mongols or read Sun Tzu about war, the art of war, or you read and learn the mythologies of the Incans and the Aztecs on war or the uh, Ashanti, uh, Tano, who's the god of war in, in their Ashanti culture in West Africa, or you read the Bhagavad Gita. It's a spiritual text about war. Makes it sound heroic. But there are other stories, you know. I was living in a monastery for a while of Ajahnjemni and on the Malay Peninsula. And during this time, when I was a monk, <clears throat> so this would have been 1971, 72, something like that. There was still a lot of armed conflict, not only in Laos and Cambodia, but in Thailand in the mountains, there were what they called terrorists. You know, that's the generic term for the ones you don't like, but sometimes they do wreak terror. Sometimes, sometimes not. But anyway, there they were, the communists, they had different names for them. And uh, Ajahn Jamian was kind of a peacemaker abbot. He would go and do blessings on all the soldiers on the different sides and give them protective amulets to wear and things. But still the firefights continued. And one night it came really close to the temple. The temple was in a rubber forest in the Malay 
Peninsula Mountains. And you could see the flashes from the guns at night. So it was, was pretty close. And then the next morning we got up, we did our chanting and meditation and so forth. And then I was out in a little meadow, a clearing really, um, doing some walking meditation. And there was an old monk there, local monk, who was sitting. And I saw helicopters come on the ridge about a mile or a mile and a half away. And you could see them dropping canister bombs that would, these the explosions would happen. And I said to the monk, oh, it looks like they're bombing those communists or whatever they call them who came down who they were fighting with last night. And he shook his head. He said, ah, there's no communists there. He said, they're, they live in the caves about 13 kilometers north that way around in that valley there. That's where they are. I said, well, why are they bombing up there then? He said, well, if they kill them all, who would give them the helicopters and all the equipment and all the money? How about that? How about that? It really makes you want to weep. Like the friend I know who was working as the executive assistant for the head of one of the biggest oil companies during one of these wars and said the thing that surprised her most was that the company was selling oil. You know, they, it, it was the U.S., it was the Vietnam War, it was still back then, was selling the oil to the South and to the North. Big surprise. Oh, nobly born, say the Buddhist texts, Remember what's possible for you as a human being. Here's the problem. The brilliant biologist E.O. Wilson at Harvard put it this way. We human beings have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike powers. That's where we're stuck. Paleolithic emotions medieval institutions and godlike powers. And yet, oh nobly born, something in us knows there's another way. We know it's possible as William Butler Yeats, the poet said, we can make our hearts and minds so like still water that be beings gather around us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. We can become that place of peace. So what, what to do? Dear Bodhisattvas, who you are, dear beings committed to the ending of suffering, they're the outer responses. I have friends who've already gone to Poland to work on the border and support refugees. Friends who went to work um, with World Central Kitchen, which we put in the chat, which is one of the most beautiful organizations of feeding hungry refugees around the world. Friends who are there as translators, friends who are there offering teachings, friends who are there working with Doctors Without Borders. But of course, it's not just there. 
it's Myanmar and it's Darfur, which is still happening. And the conflicts in Latin America and Tigray, and I don't need to go down the list in Libya. So the first response is to tend the wounds and feed the hungry and stand up for the peace in whatever way you can and welcome the refugees. Engage yourself in the politics of the time in a way that makes a difference. But there's also an inner response needed. There are three vipalasa, is the word in Sanskrit or Pali, illusions that we have. One is the illusion of permanence, that you think things will last. And yet the very last words of the Buddha are very, some of his very last, all things are impermanent. You may want them to stay the same. You may want the country, the people, the culture, the world, the whatever to stop and <clears throat> stay the way it is and have what you have. A poem from the New Yorker. <clears throat> what now? <clears throat> There's a magnificent sands castle that's taken years to build. A row of pink seashells for gables, rooms of pebble and driftwood. This is your life. Then comes the affair, the nagging blood work, a freeway pile up, the tide moves in, the water eats your work like a drove of wild birds. There's debris, a tatter of seagrass. I'm here to tell you the tide will never stop coming in. I'm here to tell you Whatever you build will be ruined, so make it beautiful. And that's where we could weep. Because the world itself is sacred and beautiful, and yet we can't hold on to it. It's where we started in our sitting. Praise and blame, gain and loss, war and peace, pleasure and pain, birth and death. The illusion of permanence, it is not permanent. All is impermanent like the tide. Then there's the illusion of ownership, that there's someone, you, you that you think you own your body. Good luck, you can take care of it, please. You know, take care of your car too, but and your garden and your neighborhood. You don't own it, you own it, it would do what you want, right? Don't get old. <laughs> doesn't work that way. The whole sense of self and ownership is a fiction constructed. We are part of a whole. We are consciousness itself playing in these different forms. And none of it can be owned. It comes and goes. And then there's the illusion that we can sustain pleasure. It's a great one in this country, you know, especially with Amazon. It's fantastic. I love it, actually. I have to say, I know it's not really great and I'm politically incorrect. But God, you go on, you see something, one little click, buy with one click, and next day it appears. I mean, it's like Santa Claus and a magic genie, you know. Of course, it's 
a lot of destruction involved in all of that too, we know, but this is our culture. Keep the pleasure going. Try to avoid loss, pain, sadness, the end of things, blame, death. So these are illusions <clears throat> from the text of the Dhammapada. Your body is like a fragile jar. Make your home in the untroubled heart or mind. Your body is like a foam, or a wave, a shadow of a shadow, a bubble, a mirage, this world, a dream. Escape the king of death. Let go of this body and this attachment in these dreams. The wind cannot overturn a mountain and neither praise nor blame can overturn <clears throat> the heart of one who has let go. Few cross the river, most are stranded running up and down on the river bank. But the wise who know harm no one. They release anger and fear. They live in love and do their work, inner and outer, and make an end to sorrow. Oh, nobly born, remember that you have the capacity for a peaceful heart amidst it all, and that the world longs for this. That you are loving awareness, pure consciousness, pure the witness to all of this. And even now, as you practice, as you meditate, you can invite this sense of vastness, of equanimity and a peaceful heart. You step out of the small sense of self, out of the body of fear, out of all the dramas. That doesn't mean that they're not, that they're not there. You worry about people you love and you worry about places you love and you worry about people you don't even know. All that's human and natural. And you can hold all that in compassion, vast compassion. But don't forget who you really are. You are loving awareness itself. Don't get caught in the dramas of the wars and keep them going. You know, James McNeil Whistler, the acclaimed painter and artist <clears throat> attended West Point as a cadet in his early years. And as part of the training there, <coughs> they were supposed to sketch military campaigns and how they would do it. And being a good artist, Whistler was asked to do a drawing of a bridge across a river. The implication was that that would be how the army could get to the other side and continue its conquest. He drew a scene somewhat bucolic. He made a nice stone arch bridge over the river. And then he drew 
a little boy with a fishing rod fishing off the bridge. The commandant of that class saw it and said, get that boy off the bridge. So he redid it again. And he put the little boy with his fishing pole sitting on the bank of the river and let the bridge be it was. And the commander of that class said, get that boy out of the picture. So Whistler redo the bridge and the river and where the boy had sat on the riverbank, he put a little headstone, a little tombstone. He then quit. And that's really the moral of the story. Something in him knew it was not the right place for him. And I don't mean that as a put down of West Point, particularly more than anything else. But I mean that there's something in us that knows that there's another way. And that the children who are in danger in Kiev or in Darfur or the Rohingya children, they're all our children. Steven Pinker, who wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature and wrote of enlightenment, he's the anthropologist, philosopher, historian at Harvard. He claims through his statistics and charts and all those things, they're actually quite impressive, that we're doing better as human beings now than we had. There are less wars, there's less slavery, there's less terrible treatment of children and women. Oh, there's still slavery. We know this. We know women are mistreated. We know that there's still war. But when he charts it, it's declining. There's less of these things. He said, we are perhaps evolving in fits and starts and slowly. We're in a time of great transition. The globe and as a species the climate, the pandemic, the injustice and racism, they're all pressing on us to live in a different way. And if you live with a peaceful heart, the point is not to let your heart get hardened, not to turn your gaze away, but to see another possibility, to see it with a great heart of compassion, and see it fresh and say, we don't have to do this. You know, one of the very first neuroscience studies ever done about Buddhist meditation was done in the 1960s by these two researchers in Japan named Kazumatsu and Harai. I don't know their first names. And they did an interesting study about habituation. Because normally when something repeats itself in our consciousness, after a while, we get habituated to it and we start to ignore it and go on to other things. You all know how that happens. Sometimes it's even the voice of somebody you live with, but I shouldn't say that. But it can be all kinds of things that we get habituated to, you know. Um, and... Uh, what they wanted to study was, did the training of attention affect that habituation mechanism? Because it's a, it's a strategic mechanism in, in our nervous system so that we don't have to keep paying attention to the same thing over and over again. 
and we can be more attuned to things that might be dangerous or might be an opportunity for food or whatever. You can think way back, you know, and if you heard this clattering in the tree and, and then you looked and you went out and you discovered that it was a, um, a tree that had a limb that was banging against the tree, you realized it wasn't dangerous, then you'd hear the clattering, but you'd ignore it. The research that was so interesting was that they got some seniors and meditators and hooked them up to some electronic monitoring. They didn't get habituated. That each time a certain stimulus came, other people they had sit and be quiet and so forth. After a while, they'd hear a piece of music or a sound or a voice or something. When they heard the same thing over and over again, they started to ignore it. You could see in the brain signal, there was just like that. But the people who were meditating and had practiced, there was a beginner's mind of freshness each time. Now is the time for us to look afresh. It is better to light a candle than curse the gathering darkness, say the prophets, to foster a wiser society. Even though Mara will visit, and Thich Nhat Hanh suggests that we have tea with Mara on occasion, we need to vote for a department of peacemaking. We need to bring social and emotional learning more fully into education everywhere. We need to learn truth and reconciliation as a way of living in our communities and conflict resolution. The wise, the foolish look at events, says the Buddha, and the wise look at causes. We need to plant the seeds of well being and respect to make a wise society where those who are vulnerable are cared for, where there is genuine justice. It may sound impossible, but I think we're improving. I think Steven Pinker's right. Henry Moore, one of the greatest sculptors of the sculptors of the 20th century said, the secret of life is to have a task, a vision, something you devote your entire life to. And the most important thing is, it must be something you cannot possibly do. He's talking like the Bodhisattva who takes the vow to say sentient beings are numberless. I vow to bring liberation to them all to end suffering. We have the possibility, we have the capacity, dear ones, to embody what we care about, to live it and make it come alive in our own hearts to be that zone of peace how we respond when conflict arises around us in our culture, in the world. To plant seeds of goodness. As we do so, we become, I think Alice Walker coined the phrase, we are the ones we've been waiting for. 
you are the ones you've been waiting for. In the marketplace, in the family, in community, in business, let there be respect and healing, wisdom. Join with others. We can't do it alone. Together with my teaching colleague and friend Tara Brock and I have started a, uh, an online company called Cloud Sangha because one of the most frequent questions that I get asked over the years of traveling around the world is how do I find a teacher? Especially if I live in Des Moines or in, you know, Tampa or if I live in Belfast, Ireland or wherever, how do I have a teacher? And it turns out one of the blessings that's come from the pandemic where we've learned to connect online is that we can make connections with teachers for people around the world. So with Cloud Sangha, you can sign up for these small groups for several months or a year and become part of a weekly group of eight or nine people with a teacher and talk about your life, your practice, all the things that matter to you in your spiritual life and listen to others and learn from one another. And the people who are in it, love it. I'm telling you about it because it might serve some of you, but I'm also telling you about it because we need each other. That what I've been giving voice to, oh, nobly born, you know, is true that peace is possible in the human heart, that there are Nelson Mandela's who can walk out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with such magnanimity and compassion that they changed the whole nation of South Africa and the imagination of the world, that this is possible for us as human beings. And not just Nelson, but the people singing from the balconies you know, in the pandemic and delivering food in the smallest gestures. You carry the medicine the world needs, but you need to get quiet. You need to find a way to make your heart a zone of peace. It's why we practice. And from that quiet place, as Yates said, our stillness allows others to see clearly too. We join hands, we join hearts, we come together. And I close these teachings by reading yet again what I read a month ago in a talk from John O'Donohue, his poem for peace. As the fever of day calms toward twilight, May all that is strained in us come to ease. <clears throat> we pray for all who suffered violence today. May an unexpected serenity surprise them. For those who risk their lives each day for peace, we pray may their hearts glimpse providence at the heart of history itself that those who make riches from violence and war might hear in their dreams 
the cries of the lost, that we might see through our fear of each other a new vision to heal our fatal attraction to aggression, that those who enjoy the privilege of peace might not forget their tormented brothers and sisters, that the wolf might lie down with the lamb, that our swords be beaten into plowshares and no hurt or harm be done anywhere along this holy mountain. So let your eyes close for a moment. Just sit quietly. And remember what touched you or reminded you tonight of your own goodness, your own great heart of compassion, your own capacities to bring your gifts to this world. <laughs> 